Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, this week we're going to have three sections for you. We're going to do our news roundup, which we haven't done for a couple of weeks now. And in that news roundup, we'll talk about uh, some user numbers that Instagram released this week. We will talk about the acquisition of the majority stake in Supercell, the game maker, by Tencent. Um, and then we'll talk about BlackBerry's earnings. Uh, our question of the week, which will be our middle segment, will be uh, how can differential privacy make my life better? So differential privacy was a big element of the privacy discussion at Apple's WWDC last week, but it's a topic that existed long before Apple latched onto it. And so Aaron's going to talk us through what it is, um, how it works, why it's a good approach or not to issues of privacy with aggregated data and so on. And so we'll talk through that as our question of the week today. And then our third topic will be something of a sort of cleanup topic on what we talked about last week with WWDC. So there are a couple of things we didn't get to and there are a couple of related topics that have popped up this week as well, uh, one of which is that the reviews for a lot of publications of Sierra, the new version of the Mac OS, uh, came out this week. There must have been some kind of embargo that lifted. Uh, and so we'll talk about that, and we'll also talk about uh, reports in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere about the iPhone 7 or whatever it may end up being called that will be released this fall that obviously will be the first device to launch with the new version of iOS that was announced at WWDC. So uh, that will be our third topic. We'll talk about those things and then we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick. So that's kind of the agenda for today. So to kick off the news roundup, uh, as I said, Instagram put out some user numbers. Specifically, uh, they said they now have 500 million monthly active users and uh, of those 300 million uh, check the service every day. So those would be daily active users. Um, and the obvious comparison to make is to Twitter, which has just over 300 million monthly active users and refuses to share daily active new user numbers. So, uh, you know, there was a time when it was news that Instagram looked like it was passing Twitter in terms of total users. It's now getting very close in terms of daily active users to Twitter's monthly active user number. So just continues to kind of outpace Twitter um, but Aaron, what was your take on that Instagram news? Uh, I guess I can't say that it, it was surprising, but um, but it's still an awesome feat. I mean, I'm just still struck by how small Instagram was from the start, and and how and how well focused they've kept the platform this entire time. I mean, it's really nice when you open up Instagram. The experiences. You know what you expect. One of the reasons I think a lot of people are drawn to it, and this is just based on anecdotal observation, is it feels like a much more curated, controllable social media platform than uh, I think others can be. Um, you know, the thing about Twitter is it, it always feels. I mean, there's so much to it that's impersonal because you're following people that you don't even know right. in person. Whereas Instagram is much more about the people that you do know and want to stay in touch with, but without all the mess and noise of Facebook. Um, I, I think there is a really important niche there um, that turns out to be pretty huge where people mm -hmm. can have personal encounters with the people that they, that they love through, you know, through, uh, through the pictures on Instagram. But uh, but at the same time, not being sort of overwhelmed by everything else that comes along with a platform like Facebook. Yeah, it feels. Insane. I was talking to somebody, a, a reporter, about it this week, and and the sort of thing that popped into my head is that Instagram has become sort of a more focused version of Facebook. So it's like Facebook. I think for many of us, it's a place where we largely connect with people that we know. You know, it's obviously possible to follow brands and celebrities too, and it's one of its strengths is that it does that quite well as well. Um, but 
it's you know like a visually focused version of Facebook. It doesn't have all the text and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't have links out at all, which can be frustrating at times. But it's this very focused pictures and videos only. Uh, and I think for many of us, probably it's mostly about people we know. Whereas Twitter is kind of entirely open-ended, mostly text-focused. Obviously, with you know, pictures and videos and so on, possible to be shared through it, but largely about connecting with people you don't know around topics and that kind of thing. And that can make it quite overwhelming uh, as a user, um, and uh, makes it feel impersonal and subjects it to you know all these problems with abuse and so on. So it's very interesting to see how these two products have developed very differently and how. Instagram under Facebook's guidance seems to have done incredibly well and, and really validates their uh, acquisition of Instagram a few years back. I am surprised that Facebook has shown so much restraint with Instagram um, when you look at the state of Facebook. I think, for example, the fact that there aren't outbound links except for in you know your user profile. Yeah. And uh, and like for example, you can't like somebody's comment. Right. So if somebody yeah. makes a comment on your picture. To acknowledge it, you actually have to comment back, and mm -hmm. and you know you mentioned before that some some of these limitations are frustrating, but it's part of what keeps the user burden really low. Yeah, I mean there are things I sometimes can't do that I want, but it also means there's a lot less for me to worry about as I use the platform, and I think that's great. And mm -hmm. and like I said, I'm surprised that face I, I'm genuinely surprised that Facebook has shown so much restraint with with sort of the features baked into Instagram. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, the second news roundup topic we wanted to cover was this acquisition by Tencent, big Chinese internet company of uh, Supercell, which is a big uh, mobile game maker. Uh, they acquired a majority stake for, I think, $8.6 billion and valued the company at a little over $10 billion. Uh, it had been uh, owned, that majority stake had been owned by SoftBank, big Japanese tech conglomerate, um, started out as a an online services company acquired one of the smaller mobile operators in Japan, Vodafone, rebranded it as SoftBank, and then has made a whole range of other acquisitions, owns a stake in Alibaba, uh, owns Sprint here in the US, the big wireless carrier. Uh, so it has all kinds of holdings, and um, they've been very diverse in their acquisitions over the last several years, and it seemed they've been trying to get back some discipline. And so this was one of the things that they uh, sold off recently and made a decent profit, actually, on it. Um, but Supercell is one of these big companies uh, in the mobile game space, you know, the, the app economy that we so often talk about is really dominated by games. So I think App Annie estimates that 75% of revenue on iOS is games, 90% of revenue on Google Play is games. So, you know, to a first approximation, the app economy is the game economy. And, uh, you know, Supercell is one of a handful of big companies that have had these very, very successful games like Clash of Clans and Angry Birds. Uh, and uh, a couple of other big names that have really kind of dominated this, and, and each of those kind of has a, a company behind it. So, you know, Supercell is one of those companies. King Digital is another one. Uh, Rovio with Angry Birds is the third. Uh, Zynga's had, you know, Farmville in the past as less successful individual franchises recently, and kind of moved into the kind of gambling-oriented games recently. But uh, just interesting to see such a big valuation. But it's it's one of the best ways you can buy into the app economy if you're not one of the two companies that owns the platforms themselves is to buy one of these big game makers. I think it's also fascinating the way that this has moved major games, or this is the way the app economy has essentially created major game studios that are not located in either the U.S. or Japan. I mean, the fact that, like, I, I think, you know, 20 years ago, nobody, or even 10 years ago, nobody would have predicted a, a game studio in fin Finland getting a $10 billion valuation. You know, because it used to be so much harder to break into gaming platforms, and now, you know, the capital requirements are so much lower to to make a game. 
that could be huge the way that Clash of Clans has been. I, I think it's really cool the way it's internationalized game development so much more. And, you know, there's going to be a day when we're going to talk about a major Indian gaming studio or a major African gaming studio, a Latin American one, and, and it's, and it's, and, and they're going to be getting these multi-billion dollar valuations. I think this is, I don't think this is a flash in the pan. I don't think this is a bubble. I think this is the beginning of an upward trend. Yeah, what's interesting too is that among those big game companies, a lot of them have had a real struggle after that first initial hit. So like Rovio with Angry Birds has really not been able to replicate that success since and it's really struggled. I mentioned Zynga just now, which is another one that you know, had a great success early on with a couple of big online games and hasn't really been able to parlay that into uh, mobile success other than through acquisitions and, and it's kind of struggled and it's kind of a fragmented opportunity now. Uh, King Digital was another one that we mentioned earlier. You know, it's also struggled since the success of an early big game. Uh, Supercell's the exception. Um, so Clash of Clans continues to be extremely uh, successful. They've had a couple of other hits as well, and financially too, it's a very, very profitable company. So it's got EBITDA margins of 40% last year. Um, they've got 180 employees, and they had revenue last year of 2.1 billion euros. Um, so you know, very successful company. Um, and uh, continues to do very well. So in some extent, it's, it's the exception uh, in a world where these companies tend to have one big hit and then really struggle to follow up on that and, and see revenues and profits decline afterwards. They, they you know, are one of the most successful companies in this business. Let's move on to talking about our third news roundup topic, and this is BlackBerry's earnings. They came out uh, Wednesday, uh, Thursday morning, uh, the day that we're recording this. And... Uh, there, you know, there's a, a long-running story here, obviously, of the decline in hardware, and there's yet another decline in, in smartphone shipments. It was half a million this quarter, you know, which is down from a peak of somewhere around 15 million a few years back. Um, you know, their big story is they're focused now on software and services, and it's mostly enterprise mobility management software and some of the related stuff. They've got to play in the Internet of Things, and uh, they have this Cunex operating system that runs in cars, and all of that's kind of growing somewhat organically, but... Um, you know, has yet to sort of offset the decline in in hardware revenues. The, the comment I always get back every time I tweet anything about BlackBerry results is, I didn't realize they were still around. Um, so, you know, there's a real sort of sense of BlackBerry is not its former self, which is obviously true, but it, it's, it is still around. It's still, you know, has lots of cash in the bank. It's not going anywhere anytime soon, but it's certainly a very different company now uh, from the company that it was, you know, back when we were all carrying BlackBerry devices around. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch it. I, I I I compared it earlier in our conversation to the slowest drunk driving wreck in history, <laughs> because it really <laughs> yeah. feels like it, it. I mean, so to kind of to, to kind of explain why I compared to a drunk driving wreck. I mean, you know, if you're drunk driving, you're going to get into an accident, and this sort of thing should be foreseeable, right? It, M. G. Siegler earlier today tweeted out a chart from the Economist on BlackBerry's revenues over the last let's see over the last nine years and uh and you can see it actually was trending upward to about 20 million in 2011 and then from there it started tanking and it's weird to think that blackberry peaked in revenue in 2011 i mean that's yeah. years after the iphone came out mm -hmm. yeah but but the writing was on the wall at that point Right. And I still remember, though, that, you know, a lot of the BlackBerry enthusiasts were naysayers that the iPhone, because it didn't have a physical keyboard, could ever take over. Right. And um, the CEOs, too. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that's what makes it feel like the, you know, this really slow, long 
drunk driving crash, right? right. Because yeah. the people running it, you know, driving the car in this case, clearly, you know, were not seeing straight. Um, but, uh, you know, it's crazy to think that five years later, even though revenues have absolutely cratered, uh, you know, the company's still around. Yeah, yeah, and still selling half a million smartphones anyway. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I wrote a piece for Tech Opinions a few months ago called Arrivals and Departures. And the thrust of the piece was that you can often see new technology arriving, you know, very quickly. And yet the things that it will end up replacing often don't leave for quite some time afterwards, even though, you know, they are replaced by those new things that come along. And for a long time, these things coexist. And it's certainly the case with the iPhone, where it became clear a couple of years in that the iPhone was going to dominate smartphones and eventually squeeze out companies like BlackBerry. But it took several years for that to even start to really happen. And then took several more years for it to really take effect and, and, and have the, this you know, disastrous impact on BlackBerry over time. Um, so it's always fascinating to see how long these transitions can take, even when it's fairly obvious to lots of people that they're going to happen. Yeah, I hope a lot of Fitbit listeners were, or Fitbit users were listening <laughs> as you said that. Yeah, certainly lots of companies. Because we're, that, we're there. I mean, yeah. give, it, give it another year and you're going to start seeing that trend going downward. Yeah, yeah, quite possible. Um, ditto probably GoPro as well for that matter. Um, okay, let's move on to our question of the week. And so as I said up, up at the beginning of the episode, our question of the week today is how can differential privacy make my life better, which may sound like a funny question, but uh, it was obviously a theme at Apple's developer event last week. I think for many of us that aren't working in the privacy space day in, day out, it was probably a new phrase, one that we hadn't come across before and certainly didn't understand fully. And there was a very brief explanation of it on stage. But this is clearly a major plank of Apple's strategy for privacy as regards aggregated data in particular. So this isn't about your personal data and what stays on your device. This is about the stuff that gets fed back to Apple servers and how they aggregate that to, to spot trends and so on. And so we're going to talk through that. Aaron's going to help us to kind of understand what it is and uh, some of the real-world applications and, and some of the limitations of this approach as well. So, Aaron, why don't we kick off with a simple question. What is differential privacy? Well, um, I'm going to give a complicated definition and then work our way into it to make it more simple. But essentially, differential privacy is a way to observe statistical patterns in really big data sets without being able to identify specific records in the data. So you may have the user patterns of millions of people, but uh, unless you somehow try to anonymize those individual records, you'll always be able to zoom in on a particular user in a way that could violate that person's privacy. And so what differential privacy does is it figures out a way to be able to find patterns without individual records being identifiable and therefore a breach of somebody's privacy. Um, you know, we all know that our smartphones generate a lot of data. This has been a really hot topic in the news uh, in all kinds of areas, most, most recently prominently with the uh, Apple FBI fight. I mean, the, the, your smartphone is, uh, you know, essentially a digital representation of your personal life. And it knows things about you that nobody else in the world knows. And uh, so you can imagine how the phone itself could, could be really useful in uh, identifying the patterns of sort of all of us as we go throughout our days. Um, and, uh, the, you know, to identify patterns in the phone, there are a couple approaches. And one is the one that Apple has been working on up just until this last announcement, which is having the phone be really good at identifying patterns. And so your iPhone now, this is before the WWDC announcements, your iPhone could 
for example, know that you tend to drive to work every morning at around 8.30, and so if, if you pull up the Today View, um, it'll say your drive to work will take you about eight minutes right now. And that's a prediction that happens on the phone itself. It doesn't happen because it, it, if it sort of figures out your pattern of location data within the phone and not after uploading your location data to some server and then sucking back in the, rec the, the, the prediction of how long your drive will take. So you can, you can analyze patterns within the phone itself. The problem is, is you, you have very limited amount of data to, to analyze. And so the patterns you identify aren't going to be very useful. And so the, the next best approach is to, well, the best approach to getting this extra information that can be very useful is uploading your data to a server, a big, fast computer that compares your data to the data of millions of others, other people. The problem, obviously, with uploading your data is it creates a record of your private information that's now out of your control. Um, you, and that means you have to trust the people that are now controlling your data that they won't use it in ways that you don't like. Um, and this trust issue is at the heart of the, the privacy stuff surrounding smartphones and sort of the public battle, the PR battle that Google and Apple have been having over this. Um, and so we have a trade-off, right? And the trade-off is the value of finding patterns in aggregated data and how those patterns can be useful to individual users. But also the, the trade, but that trades off with the benefit of having privacy for individual users, um, who would have to lose it if they upload their data. And differential privacy is a, is a partial solution to this problem, and I'll explain later why it's a partial solution. Um, so to kind of briefly explain how differential privacy works, I'm actually going to go to a precursor, simple example of this technique um, called randomized response, which has been used by statisticians and, and social scientists now for. Uh, over 60 years, and, and, and they use randomized response technique when they're asking people questions in surveys that involve embarrassing behavior like illegal drug use. So yeah, and if I was a researcher and I want to know if you use drugs illegally, you probably would be hesitant to answer that question because you'd be worried about your answer being traceable back to you, even if I were to lump you in with hundreds of other responses. And so the way uh, randomized response works is you would, I, before you even answer the question, I'd have you flip a coin. And if, if the coin comes up heads, then the answer is actually randomized yes or no. So you're not even going to give the real answer to the question. It's just going to be a randomized yes or no. But if the, it, which, uh, which I would fill in as the researcher. But if we flip the coin and, the, and, the, and, the, and it comes up tails, then you would give me your real answer. Well, the nice thing for you is in answering the question is we don't, it, we don't actually write down what the coin flip result was. We just, the only thing we take away is the answer itself. Mm -hmm. And so nobody knows if the answer on record for your response is the result of a randomized coin flip or is the actual answer you gave to the question. So you right. are now, you now are guaranteed privacy because it would be an unfair accusation either way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the nice thing is, is when we take that and we aggregate it with all of the other responses that are given, we can essentially statistically filter out the noise that was generated by the coin, by the coin flips, because those are a predictable pattern of 50, 50. Right. And so we can, what we see if we get enough respondents is a pattern that emerges beyond the 50, 50 odds that mm -hmm. we're inserting into the data. 
Right. And then we can observe, okay, within this group or population, you know, the, the illegal drug use is, is about this much. And that's statistically as valid as if we had collected actual answers from every single respondent. Um, but every individual's response with randomized response approach is, is, an, is sufficiently anonymized that we can never trace it back to know what your answer was or anybody else's answer was to the survey. So this is a really old technique. Differential privacy is a much more sophisticated evolution of this. Uh, and differential privacy itself is about 10 years old. In fact, in the keynote last week, Craig Federighi referenced how they invited one of the quote-unquote inventors of differential privacy into Apple to evaluate their approach, um, a guy named Aaron Roth. And, and he co-authored a book about differential privacy, specifically in computer science. Uh, for analyzing large data sets. And so this what makes differential privacy so much more sophisticated is because it involves much more complex insertions of randomized data to sufficiently anonymized records. So that's so that's kind of the big overall description of differential privacy. Great. So you said you, you just kind of talked about that was an earlier version of it that you kind of described with the coin flip and so on. So what are the sort of real-world applications of that approach today? Well, today it's harder to do coin flips with respondents in a survey because the, the data that needs to be analyzed is data that spans, you know, millions and millions of, of records being pulled in from smartphone users around the world. Right. And so differential privacy is essentially automating the coin flips, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and and applying it to to all of these ways the data can be used in useful ways and so obviously we're like you said we're talking about this because of Apple's iOS 10 announcements last week Apple as a company places a high premium on privacy it's part of their marketing strategy um, but that but that uh, preference for privacy limits the ability of iOS devices to make smart guesses based on trends and data um, if you compare, for example, what Google Now can do versus what Apple's baked-in services can do, there's a huge difference. I mean, Google Now will tell you all kinds of things based on what word it thinks you're going to search for when you open it up the app, based on your location, right? It's going to make a guess about what you might want to search for and all kinds of other things. And that's because Google Now is taking all this information about you and comparing it to all these other users out there and making these predictions, but it doesn't do it in a way that is anonymizing you. So you're just trusting that Google's going to use that information with care. Um, and so Apple, to sort of combat this problem of being able to do these, you know, these big pattern uh, statistics without giving away or risking customers' privacy, um, is is the, the, Apple's using differential privacy to try to fix this problem. And the truth is they're really kind of just dipping their toe in this um, because the areas where Apple is using differential privacy, it, 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 they're relatively small. Now, compare that. Before I get into what those are, it's worth pointing out that, I mean, differential privacy could be used in all kinds of important things. In fact, has been um, sort of experimented with in things like medical research. And I'll give you an example of how that was before. And so, I mean, you could find big important patterns that could actually save people's lives. That's not what Apple's doing. <laughs> so, so what Apple is doing with differential privacy right now is in just four very small areas. One is in emoji suggestions. So when you're typing in, the, in like messages, for example, uh, it might... Uh, uh, messages might suggest iMessage might suggest an emoji for you to use in context, and it will do that based on 
uploading your data to a server and looking at what other emojis people are using talk, when talking about the same things. And then the server sends back to the keyboard in iOS 10 a recommendation on an emoji that might be useful in that moment. Um, the same is true of quick type suggestions generally, like words that are going to be used. It'll actually, it'll actually, iOS 10 will actually update uh, autocorrect suggestions and dictionary suggestions based on slang words becoming popular. So, so like on fleek could be a quick type suggestion, even though that's not, well, I don't know, maybe that's made it into Webster's by now, but I'm not sure. <laughs> but you get the point, right? Is it, yeah. is that like when you're having a conversation with somebody, uh, the, the idea is that based on all these other trends that are happening out there, Apple can, iOS 10 can recommend to you uh, suggestions as you type. Uh, a third area is in deep link suggestions. So if you remember what deep linking is, it's where essentially you can link to a particular feature within a third-party app. So like you might be able to link to a particular album within Spotify, for example. Um, now for deep linking to work with differential privacy, developers have to uh, essentially make this public data accessible up toward the servers. So that's up to the app developers to essentially push the data up to servers for analysis. But the idea will be is when you're doing a spotlight search, there will be uh, search suggestions that show up based on what you type um, that will deep link into third-party apps, which sounds pretty useful. And then the fourth is a really minor area, but it's essentially the lookup hints that are in the notes application. So when you are you know, essentially looking up a particular word, the suggestions that Apple offers will also be guided by big data. Now, um, in all of these cases, the iOS device is using differential privacy in the following way. Essentially, um, it randomly generates data to send along your phone itself, randomly generates data that can, then gets shipped up to the server along with your actual personal information. And so, like what you're typing in messages gets uploaded to the server along with a batch of random data. And the idea is that when that all goes up to the server, all the randomized data sort of falls out in the statistical analysis and only the big patterns show up. Well, what's cool about that for you from a privacy perspective is it would be ideally impossible for uh, somebody who had access to that data to drill back down into the record and know exactly what it was that you typed into messages. And so the pattern emerges on a statistical basis, but it but there's no individual identifi identification that can occur for whatever it was that you typed into iMessage, which is pretty cool. Um, to enhance this, Apple also isn't building any user profiles. Um, so they don't maintain a profile of the stuff that you're sending to the server for longer than even just a minute or two. Um, and they also limit the amount of data and the frequency of polling the data that comes from your phone. So they'll only accept up to a certain amount of data and then they stop pulling from your phone. Uh, they stop pulling data from your phone to crunch along with everybody else's. And they'll also only pull your phone every once in a while and we don't know what the frequency actually is, but they essentially limit the frequency with which they pull the data from your phone as well. Um, all of that is part of what's called the privacy budget in uh, differential privacy, which which actually the privacy budget relates to some of the limitations that uh, exist in differential privacy. So is, is, as I understand it, is the privacy budget kind of the trade-off between how much privacy you get and how much 
sort of noise and therefore reduction in usefulness of the data there is? Is that what the privacy budget refers to? Yeah, that's right. I mean, because the problem is with statistical analysis, you can figure out things that are not in inherently observable. Um, so privacy budgets limit the amount of information that, that is sought from a particular, you know, contributor, the time frame of the information that's sought, and also any repeating of specific data points like your location data, or maybe right. like same time of day every day for a certain period. The idea is that you can't pull too much of this information, either in frequency or character or scope, because if you pull too much of it, then anybody with statistical sophistication could essentially identify you. Um, and so this is one of the biggest limitations of differential privacy is the tuning of the privacy budget. Mm -hmm. If you don't add enough noise, then you can identify individual records in the data patterns. This actually happened to Netflix somewhat famously right. back when they ran a competition for their recommendations algorithm. If you remember, they had their recommendations algorithm and they wanted to make it even better. And so they uploaded an anonymized data set to the internet to, for researchers to take it to, to download and then try to come up with a better recommendation algorithm than, than Netflix had. Well, there were some statistical researchers who were able to identify individual, um, they basically were able to de-anonymize the data set using right. just statistical tools. And that's because Netflix didn't add nearly enough statistical noise, or I don't think any for that matter, um, mm -hmm. in, right. in the data set that they uploaded. Because um, the issue there I mean, was it basically said the whole point of the recommendation engine, if you like this, you would also like this. And so it was right. basically it had to be kind of user-level data that said, right. you know, people who like this movie also like that movie and so on. And so it wasn't that the data itself exposed user identities, but I think that they compared the movies people had watched to things people had rated on IMDb and started to be able to connect a user on Netflix to a, that was anonymized to a user on IMDb that had a specific profile and so on. I think that's kind of what happened there, right? That's right. And so that was obviously embarrassing to Netflix, but kind of highlights how dangerous even really big data sets can be. You can't really hide in them without something right. like differential privacy being applied. And so this noise, there has to be enough noise as part of the privacy budget. Otherwise, you're not going to get uh, you're not going to get enough anonymization. Um, but the other problem is if you had too much noise, you get inaccurate patterns. Um, right. And there's a great article by a security researcher that we're going to upload. Um, or that we're going to link to on the blog, uh, but uh, just kind of describe a guy named Matthew Green, and he kind of describes um, uh, differential privacy from the perspective of cryptographic engineering, which is the field where differential privacy is kind of, you know, operates. And mm. uh, he gave this really example, interesting example of how hard it is to, to balance a privacy budget. And essentially, there were some re researchers who did a study on a drug called warfarin, which is a, a anticoagulant. Um, now, medical data obviously is intensely private, but you need access to medical data to identify big patterns so you can make better medical recommendations to people. And so in this study, they took all of this warfarin patient data, which was not anonymized, and then they introduced differential privacy techniques to the data to see if they could still keep the recommendations accurate. And what the researchers found is it was far too easy to leak patient data unintentionally by adding too little noise. And then on the other hand, it was equally easy to get bad patterns 
that mm. in the, by, by adding too much noise, that ended up recommending right. doses of the drug that would kill these simulated patients. Yeah. And so creating the right privacy budget in that scenario ended up being in, incredibly hard because yeah. you were either giving away patient data or you were killing them by giving them bad doses of the drug, either too much mm. or too little. Right. And so, so this, this privacy budget problem, I, I, I mean, it's obviously not unsolvable, um, but it is really tricky. And, uh, and the, the biggest complaint, as I've been reading up on the topic, the biggest complaint I've seen among security researchers is that Apple is not being at all transparent in their approach to this right now. Like they haven't right. told anybody yet what they've figured out and what they're doing or what sort of privacy budget settings they're using or, or anything like that. So we don't know how much privacy we're actually getting. We're just being told by Apple that we're getting better privacy. Right. Right. And I guess these same issues apply to anybody with any approach to privacy, right? So there's always the trade-off between privacy and then noise and usefulness of the data. That's, and that's mostly true. I mean, the, you know, Matthew Green in, in his posts uh, uh, had a really interesting observation, which is that you know, one of the better things you can do is just never actually collect the individual data or maybe instead use a randomized response technique. And so Google actually collects user data through the Chrome browser, mm -hmm. but they do it with a, I lost my notes on that, hold on. They do that with a system for collecting data called Rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R, which is an mm -hmm. acronym for something. Um, but, uh, but the idea is that they use, so they're not using differential privacy in Chrome, they're using randomized response technique, which means you don't actually like, you don't actually know if your data has made it up to their server or not. Right. Um, whereas the case with differential privacy is you know you have some data up there, you just don't know mm -hmm. how much it is, especially relative to the noise that was uploaded. Right. And so, um, you know, I, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if Apple is using some of the randomized response stuff as well, but, uh, but what we don't know, and this is the problem, is exactly what it is that Apple's doing. And so right. this is where some of the other problems come in. Um, uh, Another limitation of differential privacy is it's only useful with really large data sets. You have to have a data set big enough where you can statistically work out all of the noise that you're inserting. Right. It only reaches so far for individuals um, because it assumes that broad patterns are useful to them. Like mm -hmm. I gave the example of how QuickType might recommend the slang phrase on fleek, you know? Right. But I may never use that or care to use that, right. but it's mm -hmm. the pattern. Everybody else is using it, and so it recommends to me that I should use it too when I don't particularly care to. Mm -hmm. And so it has a tendency to make recommendations that may not actually be useful to me as a user. The problem is, is if right. you start to narrow down and narrow down to find people that are more like me, then you're getting less and less private as you do that. Right. And so, uh, and then really the last major problem is it's, this all still requires trust. I mean, right. like I said, security researchers are complaining that Apple's not being transparent enough about this yet, and we don't know if they will be or not. But I suspect there's going to be an extent to which they aren't going to tell us what's actually going on. And the reason is because there are probably going to be proprietary advancements in, in how they approach this data that they aren't especially keen to share with people, right? Because right. it will be a competitive advantage to them, and, and they're not going to want to share it. And so, you know... You know, Apple users like to tease Google users for putting so much trust in Google to use mm -hmm. their data wisely. But in the end, we're doing the same thing with Apple if we use Apple products because we're just trusting that Apple is doing a good job with this differential privacy stuff. Yeah. And the other thing that's worth noting, too, I think, is that um, 
you know, we talked about this Netflix example. The reason it was an issue was because next Netflix released a huge data set publicly. Um, you know, the big difference with Apple is that Apple isn't releasing any of these data sets publicly. It's basically doing a bunch of crunching on Apple's own servers and using it to improve products at a broad sort of aggregate level. And so there's no kind of public release of that data in the way that there was with some of these other things. So the, the, the trust has to extend to the fact that Apple is using this data in appropriate ways internally. Right. Um, well, and, and that, that they won't get hacked. Apple is looking at this stuff. Right. Right. And that <clears> they won't <throat> turn it over to the FBI as part of a subpoena. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so interesting. Great. Anything, any last things you want to tell us on differential privacy if we kind of covered it? No, I think that's about it. I mean, it'll be fascinating. I, I, I'll be curious. The thing I'll be curious about is how far Apple can actually take it into, yeah. rec, you know, useful recommendations on for an mm -hmm. iOS user. I, yeah. I'm curious. I mean, I get a bunch of music recommendations, for example, in Apple Music, and I don't think those involve, you know, differential privacy at all and so right. some of right. my terrible music listening secrets will be known right, <laughs> if that data were to leak and i don't know i don't right. know how they i mean maybe they could apply it to, to music suggestions or news yeah. articles or, or or maps data i don't mm -hmm. know but yeah. it'd be uh, you know that'll be interesting to see is how how far they can take it right right good stuff well thanks aaron appreciate you taking the time to prepare that for us and we'll, we'll include some links that aaron mentioned uh, on the website as usual as well so our third segment today is sort of, as I mentioned at the beginning, a sort of cleanup from WWDC last week, some things we didn't get to talk about, and then some things that have kind of come out since then. Um, briefly, we wanted to just talk about the reviews of Mac OS Sierra. Um, somewhat unusually, we've seen this very early set of reviews of, of the state of readiness of that operating system. I mean, in general terms, uh, developers who download these betas have to sign a non-disclosure agreement that they won't talk about them publicly. Uh, and yet, you know, Apple clearly at this time around has made versions of it available to people on devices uh, such that it can be reviewed. This is explicitly Mac OS Sierra, so it's not been the case for iOS 10. It's not been the case for watchOS 3 or the latest version of tvOS either. This is specifically for Mac OS. Uh, but a whole set of reviews all came out at the same time, which made it very clear that there was some kind of embargo that lifted at a particular point in time. Um, but it was interesting to see this, and a lot of them focused, I think, naturally on uh, Siri for Mac, which is obviously one of the big things that's truly new on the Mac this time around. I saw some people sort of commenting that it feels sort of funny to have Siri and Spotlight both and that the two are separate and you type into one and talk into the other one and they don't really meet anywhere and kind of feels natural that the two should merge at some point so that you can type the same kind of queries into Spotlight that you would speak into Siri and ultimately you get a single interface that you can either speak or talk to and get the same kinds of results. That seems an obvious thing to do over time. Sometimes I wish I could type into Siri on my phone uh, by the same token. So it'd be interesting to see that. What, what stood out to you from those reviews, Aaron? Uh, I, I'm really excited about Photos. I, I think Photos is kind of making a quantum leap of usefulness and, and that seemed to be something that a lot of people were excited about, especially the image recognition stuff, which has never been the case before. I mean, Apple used to have face recognition, which was, oh my gosh, so slow. Um, because it was all crunched. I don't know what it was, but it was just much slower back in the day, in, in yeah. the days of iPhoto face, facial recognition. But I mean, I, I'm really, I, I think being able to look up a beach scene and, and in fact, from the reviews, it, it, it sounds like you can type in the name of a beach and then your, your Mac is smart enough to recognize that 
you know, if you type Laguna Beach, you know, it recognizes you're really just looking for a beach, and then it will maybe tie it together with the location of the photo. Mm. And, I mean, it just sounds awesome, like how powerful that's going to be. And yeah. a lot of the reviewers specifically pointed out that just monkeying around with this, they, they saw themselves looking at photos that they hadn't looked at in years. And, mm. you know, that's, that's, it's, a, it's a treasure trove that we have in our photos yeah. databases, and it's going to be fun to kind of dig through that all again. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this is one of the big challenges always with photo storage services is that you store your photos and you never, ever look at them again. It's like having a whole set of photo albums that are sort of locked away in the attic that you never go look at. And in theory, they're there and you could go and look at them, but you never do. And part of it's it's kind of overwhelming. Where do you start, you know? And so these tools, and you see it on Facebook with the kind of a year ago, five years ago, you posted this or whatever. It kind of helps to resurface things and products like time hop that, that focus on that but this kind of memories function is a way of kind of resurfacing things that are there somewhere but that you have no specific reason to go looking for and so it's an interesting move on apple's part and, and google photos does something similar to surface some of this stuff that you otherwise wouldn't kind of come across um, anything else that kind of stood out to you from the reviews? I'm mean, thinking Siri was one of the big things that, that I noticed. There's the storage optimization stuff. It's always tough for people to really test, but yeah, uh, I'm not sure we talked about it a lot last week. But Everybody who reviews. reviewed that was really cautious. Like, in yeah. fact, I think very few people actually ever turned it on. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and that's my big worry. And I said this during the keynote too. It's like, I don't know, I found iCloud just glitchy enough that I'd be really worried about trusting this sort of automated backup and, and making decisions about what's worth keeping and isn't and how to back it up and will it really be accessible and so on to, you know, that service as of today. And so these things rely on a huge, I mean, we talked about trust in the context of privacy just now, and I think people generally have a fairly high level of trust when it comes to that and Apple. But when it comes to iCloud, I suspect many people are still a little bit skeptical that Apple can really do this right and in a robust way that you can really sort of let go, essentially, of control of the files on your computer and, and trust that it will get it right. Well, and I would be comfortable, and this is a uh, this is a detail that I haven't yet found the answer to, a question I haven't found the answer to, is, it you know, does the time machine backup reflect everything that's supposed to be there, including the stuff that's been uploaded to iCloud, or does the, your time machine backup reflect just what's actually on your Mac? Because if my time machine backup was everything that I wanted on my computer, including the stuff that was sort of, you know, stored away into iCloud, yeah. I would feel more comfortable trusting iCloud because mm -hmm. it's still in two locations. And in fact, it's better because one of them is remote and the other one's, you know, at local. home yeah, yeah, and local. And so, so if, if a time machine backup is, is a full and complete and accurate reflection of what I want on my computer, even if some of those files have been, you know, shuttled mm -hmm. off to iCloud, I, I would, I would, I would be comfortable using it, but only under that condition. In no way would I right. be okay if it was just iCloud being this, you know, the, the storage location for, you know, any old files. Yeah. Uh, something else that we talked about before we started recording was just how early in this process this developer preview has been released. I mean, developers obviously get it the day of, and that's fairly standard, but to have reviewers actually review it, even in the context of it being a very early developer beta, makes it seem as though Apple's very confident in its stability and its performance. And I did see references to, you know, jankiness here and there, but... Uh, on the whole, you know, I didn't see a lot of references to that. And the fact that Apple was confident enough to let it be reviewed formally at this stage is kind of a sign that, that this may be pretty far along already compared to where these things sometimes are. Um, conversely, the fact that they didn't do the same for any of the other operating systems that were released suggests they may be a little bit further behind. 
Yeah, it makes me wonder how quickly the public beta is going to come. You know, last mm. year it came out a couple weeks sooner than had happened the previous year. And yeah. so I think this year we'll see the public beta relatively quickly, which is yeah. exciting. I don't know, you know, I yeah. think it'll it'll be fun to it'll be fun to play around with it. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I wanted to install um, Sierra on an older MacBook that I have, but it turns out it's just a year too old and it won't support it, um, which is interesting. That's the first time that's happened to me. Um, and so I haven't been able to install that. I wasn't confident enough to install it on one of my two main computers. But, you know, the public beta tends to be pretty good. And so when that stage comes along, I probably will install it on at least one of those two computers just to try it out. I have installed iOS 10 on two devices, on an iPhone and an iPad. It's been fascinating, actually, to watch my kids interacting with them. And I can't remember if I mentioned this last week, but one of my kids came into my office and grabbed the iPad off the table and uh, said, you know, what's going on? I can't unlock it anymore because there's this new thing. <laughs> you have to push the home button twice now to get the passcode to come up. Um, but once I showed him how to do it, he was like, that's really cool, you know, and he was all about it. And then another one of my kids is like, what's going on? I can't get into the iPad. And then I explained, I said, well, why do they do that? That's really dumb, you know. So <laughs> I just, you know, I just know that those same conversations are being repeated elsewhere by not just kids but adults as well. You know, these changes can be wonderful in some ways but can be frustrating in others. But another one of my kids was using the iPhone just playing around with it, the iPhone that I installed it on, and has very few pictures on it. Um, I think it's just a few photos that have come through iCloud photo sharing or something because I, I did a wipe of that device. But um, she discovered the moments and things that had been created. So there were little collections of photos and videos and things, and she was noticing that you could change the theme song and stuff. And so she was really getting into that, and she was having a good time with it. So there are definitely some features in there that are going to get some good use, both in, in Sierra and iOS. And I'm, the one I'm looking forward to the most, frankly, is watchOS 3, which, which may finally get me to start using apps again. Um, so I'm really kind of curious to see how well that works. But since I only have one Apple Watch, I'm reluctant to install it for now. But well, it gets a bit more stable. And there likely won't be a public beta of watchOS no, 3. So. that's right. Yeah, so I'm certainly have to wait a little bit for that. But I'm, I'm excited, I'm probably most excited about that, although some of the changes in the other ones I'm, I'm very interested in too. Uh, another thing that kind of came out this week was uh, not directly related to WWDC announcements, but obviously iOS 10 will, will launch with the new iPhones that are launched in the fall. And we've had some reports around both of these things already, but two specific things that were kind of reiterated in a Wall Street Journal piece this week were, one, that the iPhone that launches in the fall won't have a significant redesign from the 6 and 6S. The other one is that it likely will drop the headphone jack, the standard sort of three and a half millimeter headphone jack that all iPhones have shipped with from the beginning, uh, in favor either of lightning-based audio or uh, wireless audio and there's been some debate in the couple of days since then about what will ship with the device and whether it will be just a lightning based earpods or whether it would be the old style earpods with a dongle of some kind uh, to make it compatible with a lightning port and so these are two sort of fairly specific things that as I say we've seen rumors of here and there and it's unusual to see the Wall Street Journal come out and, and speak so strongly about both of them which suggests that it may well be a controlled leak from Apple to kind of prepare people for those things. Um, they're both interesting, and I want to talk about both of them. The one that I find in some ways more interesting is this no redesign thing, because the timing of this is really risky. Um, because, And we've talked yeah. about this a little bit over the last few months, but Apple's facing a whole variety of headwinds in terms of upgrade cycles. You know, they're getting longer in the U.S., uh, phones generally are getting better and so people feel less need to upgrade them and so on. One of the big reasons to upgrade every two years is it looked different. Your phone was obviously one of the new ones and so 
you know, the look and feel matter in that sense and has been a driver of upgrades. If this thing basically looks the same as the iPhones have for the last two years, and that reason for upgrades goes down. And I don't know what percentage of people upgrade for that reason specifically, but it, it, even if you're not trying to kind of engage in conspicuous consumption, there's a sense of this really is a new phone because it looks different and I like the new design and so on. There's a whole range of things that are tied to that. And if that goes away, I worry that, that that's a driver for upgrades that Apple can't really afford to lose right now. And so that is a very risky step. And uh, you've got to make some pretty significant changes to the performance of the device and the features of the device from a hardware perspective if you want to keep that upgrade cycle going as close as possible to what it has been in the past. And so I find that fascinating as a, as a rumor at this point. I agree. I, you know, it, but part of that, I suspect, is just the result of a years-long development pipeline. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. each subsequent version of the iPhone is the result of who knows how many years of product development. And it may be that Apple just, you know, didn't have any chance to make significant changes to the appearance because they were already locked in. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to say that they knew this rough year of iPhone sales was was coming two or three years ago. And right. so that being the case, it, you know, it could just be that they don't really have any option. And so I think a controlled leak to Wall Street Journal, sort of lowering expectations on appearance mm -hmm. changes, actually if if Apple is doing this the way they've done in the past, they're lowering expectations far enough that they can really wow with the technology that's inside of it. Yeah. And so nobody's going to freak out because everybody who knows anything, uh, you know, about the rumor cycle will have expected, you know, a, a similar looking iPhone. And so they're, yeah. they're paying attention more to what's inside it. And Apple has a chance to impress people. And and it's that that still seems likely, and in fact, very much on the table. I think camera mm -hmm. improvements. You know, there's still a ton of room for growth in that area. Um, obviously, speed is still a, a useful um, metric to to improve, and and so I, you know, I, it definitely feels like a controlled leak, um, and I suspect it's just the result of the fact that Apple was already, you know, committed to the development pipeline that they had in place. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the counterpoint to all of this, of course, is that, you know, why should you keep changing the design of the phone? You know, if you establish something that's really quite good, uh, there, A, there are manufacturing benefits to producing stuff that's basically the same size and shape and so on because you get to benefit from the scale that you've built up over time. Um, and so there's there's that side of things. So that's kind of the one counterpoint argument. The other one, though, is I think to, to your point, there, what big changes would you make at this point? And one of them is obviously eliminating the home button uh, one of them would be some kind of different screen that allows you perhaps to go edge to edge or do other interesting things with the screen. Uh, and obviously, if you've got rid of the home button, you'd have to put touch ID somewhere else, and that, that would have to be in the screen probably. Um, so there are big changes like that, and none of those are supposed to be coming this year, while we are seeing some credible reports that they will come next year. And so it's possible that Apple originally anticipated being able to do some of that stuff this year and just said, you know what, we're not going to make it this year, so we'll keep the same form factor for one more year and then make the big change the year after. Um, you know, you have to make trade-offs like that from time to time, but as I say, it's a very risky one in I, my mind. I agree, and I think in the end they're going to be taking their lumps in part because it sounds like the form factor is not going to change very much, but when you add in the headphone jack being taken yeah, out, there are going to be a lot of complaints. But Apple's had this before with other products, and they kind of mm -hmm. keep floating. And, and uh, like I said, I think there will be new technologies inside the phone to announce that will make it exciting. The headphone jack, to me, is a fascinating one because mm. this is 
easily the oldest connection technology still used in devices like this. I mean, right. that this has been around for decades. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, you know, electronic manufacturers have figured out ways to improve this over time, like adding in, you know, remote control functionality and things mm-hmm. like that. But, but it is a really old connection technology. But being so old means that people have headphones that are 10 years old that they still like to use. Right. And that means, you know, if they want to use an iPhone, they're going to have to use a dongle. And man, if there wasn't like an epitome of being a Mac user, of having to mm-hmm. pull out a dongle. Right. <laughs> I don't know what there is like that yeah. that better describes that part of the experience, and uh, and I cannot imagine Apple shipping headphones with the iPhone that require a dongle, like that mm. would that that would blow me away. And I'm not going to say it's impossible, but uh, I would be shocked, especially if they want to lead the way in Lightning being the a new connection technology for head third party manufacturers. Mm-hmm. For headphones, I you know it just would be crazy to me that Apple would be saying, "Hey, you know, uh, headphone makers, you can create lightning enabled, you know, lightning connected headphones, but ours don't have it, <laughs> right?" That to me is weird. Mm-hmm. I think they'll sell a dongle, and it'll cost, you know, twenty nine ninety five or thirty nine right. ninety five or however much mm-hmm. they're going to charge for it. But but I think the headphones that ship with it are going to be lightning enabled. Or Bluetooth, yeah, which is also a, a rumor, right? These Bluetooth earpods, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll just be yeah, that connected. just makes it much more expensive too. Which it does. I mean, take a big margin cut to do that. I mean, presumably there's some kind of margin hit from doing Lightning rather than standard three and a half millimeter jack, but not anywhere near as big as Bluetooth, which requires radios and so on. Um, yeah, no, it's it's one of those interesting things. I mean, probably all of our listeners have seen the piece that Nilay Patel did for The Verge, in which he called it kind of user hostile and stupid, basically. Um, I, I disagree um, with a lot of what he said in the piece. Um, the way I see this is, you know, in order to make progress, you sometimes have to make a big shift before your users are either expecting it or feel ready for it. Um, and, you know, people have cited all kinds of precedents over the last few days, including, you know, ditching floppy disks, dip it, ditching VGA, ditching CD drives, ditching, you know, every other port but the USB-C on the new MacBook. You know, there's lots of precedents for Apple doing this stuff and getting criticized for it at the time and ultimately ushering in, you know, new standards and things like that. The challenge here is then probably not moving to a new standard unless it's Bluetooth. Lightning obviously isn't standard, it's proprietary. Um, but, you know, to my mind, you know, the, the, my my tweet about this, the one thing I have tweeted about it was, you know, electric cars are terrible because they're not compatible with the gas station infrastructure we already have. You know, it's like, well, that's absolutely true. And that's one of the challenges with buying an electric car. But if you refuse ever to buy an electric car because it's not compatible the way things used to work, you never see any kind of meaningful progress. And ultimately, you know, these forward steps have to involve trade-offs and sacrifices of things. And they can be kind of awkward in the beginning. And you know, if ever there's a cap- company that has experience doing this kind of stuff and forcing users into these transitions before they think they're ready for them, it's Apple. Um, you'd expect them to handle it pretty well. Um, but yeah, there's, there's undoubtedly going to be some backlash. And I think, again, that's probably why they're getting the word out early, sort of get the backlash out of the way now. You know, there'll obviously be some repeat of that when the time comes. But hopefully, if you get a lot of the negative sentiment out now, it's sort of diffused somewhat by the time you're trying to get people excited about a new product. Yeah, and Apple's clearly signaling that they want wireless to be the future of having to connect things to things. Yeah, um, That's what the MacBook redesign was all about. But mm-hmm. uh, um, it'll be weird because 
with the, in the headphone space, Apple obviously prefer that everybody have Bluetooth headphones because they're just better in a lot of ways, uh, not sound quality wise, but that's changing yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bose just came out with a Bluetooth version of their really famous line of sound canceling headphones and the reviews have been pretty dang good. And so Bluetooth yeah. has a future in the headphones, even at the high end. Mm-hmm. But uh, it'll be weird because that's sort of the message everybody that's the message Apple's going to send everybody and then have this weird off message thing of what will probably be lightning connected headphones. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's going to be interesting. I mean, the reality is I use Bluetooth far more often than I ever plug anything into the headphone jack on my phone already, because when I get in the car, it just hooks up automatically and starts playing whatever I was playing last, you know, and it's, I never have to plug it in or remember to unplug it when I get out of the car. Half the time it stays in my pocket or in my bag or whatever. And, um, it's, you know, very convenient. Uh, and yes, you sacrifice a little bit in audio quality, but in the context of my fairly mediocre car stereo, it doesn't actually make that much difference. And I suspect for most people, the difference between, you know, Bluetooth headphones and the earpods that come with their iPhone is not going to be that meaningfully different either. All right, well, let's wrap up there. We're kind of coming up to the hour mark here. Um, so that, that concludes our three segments. Um, we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick. And uh, as always, when we do a question of the week, whoever doesn't do that has the, the honor to do the weekly pick. And uh, it's just where we recommend something that we've been enjoying or using recently. I think I may have referred to it briefly last week, but my recommendation is, is the soundtrack of, or the cast recording of Hamilton, the musical. Um, I realize I'm a little behind the times on this. Our family has just finally latched onto this phenomenon in the last couple of weeks. But what's been remarkable to me is just how every member of the family, with the exception of our baby, has latched onto this um, in different ways. You know, my wife and I are getting very deep into it and all the meaning of the songs and reading the uh, the lyrics online. And then they have the, the genius.com annotations on the lyrics on the official website as well, which gives you a whole additional level of detail. And it's the kind of thing that takes some investment it may not be the kind of music you're used to it, it's it's hard to digest you certainly can't just have it on in the background and expect to really make sense of it it requires a good couple of hours because it's 46 songs it requires a good couple of hours to listen to it carefully and uh, digest it but once you do it's very much worth it and and it's great my kids love the songs partly because a, a lot of the sort of sung ones are, are really melodic and, and just fun to listen to as tunes um, but it's been a great opportunity to teach our kids about some of this history too and uh, who Alexander Hamilton was and some of the decisions he made in his life and how they affected him and and how he was able to kind of come up from nothing and, and make something of himself and, and then kind of brought about his own downfall in many ways as well. And so just been a fascinating experience, but really... Uh, amazing set of of music and words and performances and so highly recommend the uh the cast recording of hamilton the musical if you haven't listened to that yet go check it out it's on all the usual music services we'll link to it on apple music and elsewhere on the website thanks for being with us this week as always we appreciate you listening to us leave us a review on itunes if you feel uh, so inclined we'd love to have that and uh, give us a comment or, or respond to us on twitter if you have any questions or feedback or indeed requests for things for us to cover on future episodes so thanks again and we'll be with you again next week thanks <laughs>